Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. To continue our series on attraction, today we'll be hearing from Sophia Hayes, Associate Professor of Chemistry at Washington University in St. Louis. In her research, Hayes uses a technique called nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR. Now, with the word magnetic being the M in NMR, you might think, like I did, that it has something to do with magnetism or attraction. And, like me, you'd be wrong. One of the funny things about NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, and magnetic resonance imaging, those two techniques, which are closely related, is that they really have nothing to do with magnetism and attraction. It's the exact opposite. In fact, we who study NMR and MRI work on things that are non-magnetic. Sometimes the technical term is called diamagnetic. Okay, so Hayes' work with NMR in itself has nothing to do with magnetism or attraction. But as we'll hear in a bit, it does involve a magnet and magnetic fields. Hayes will help us understand how it all works. She'll describe one of her own research projects that has important potential applications for the environment, and she'll help us picture what the hardware actually looks like. As a teaser, the phrase 50s or 60s era sci-fi movie may come up. But to get started, we'll learn how NMR allows scientists like Hayes to understand the structure of materials. If you asked about chemistry prior to, I'm going to say, the late 1970s, much of what was characterized had to be done by, to understand structure, had to be done by fairly crude analytical techniques. You had to be able to grow a crystal of a substance and then do X-ray diffraction on it, which is a great technique and wonderful at solving structures. But it turns out that many, many things in the world, I mean, all around us, are things that are non-crystalline. You can start with the uh, cement wall or the linoleum floor or this wood table. These are all non-crystalline substances or plastic. And, and so in all of these cases, if we tried to do an x-ray on this wooden desk here, we'd have no luck understanding its structure. So NMR does not need crystalline regularity in order to study the structure. It, it can still work on amorphous materials. This is meaning disordered like glass or like wood or like plastic, and it can understand the structure based on maybe just molecular units and by understanding sort of how that's put together, like a, almost like a jigsaw puzzle, lets us reconstruct what the structure is. And it doesn't have the, uh, let's say, the simplicity and elegance of a crystal structure, but still we're able to understand, for example, in a glass window, you know that it's SiO2, silicon dioxide, SiO2. But there are many surface pieces that are not, there, there has to be an extra piece there sometimes, and it's SiOH. And so you can look at different glasses and figure out how many OHs are there, you know, scattered throughout the structure, meaning an unsaturated bond in the language of chemistry. And NMR is perfectly suited to understanding that. So when glass companies try different formulations, they can see the balance between having some of those surface groups and not. And then that affects the wearability of the glass and whether or not it can be attacked by acid rain and all sorts of other things. And so just like you are not a crystalline substance, we can put you into an MRI machine and luckily it can see things that otherwise would be obscured. Hayes has three major projects going on right now one of which has the potential to help humans deal with the greenhouse gas CO2, or carbon dioxide, 
by actually taking it out of the atmosphere and storing it elsewhere. As a non-chemist, this sounds kind of like science fiction, but it's true. I collaborate with Mark Conrad over in physics, and we do some high-pressure NMR of carbon dioxide, of CO2. We're able to watch the carbon dioxide convert to what's called a carbonate. A carbonate would be something like calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonate, the stuff that makes up chalk or coral, that kind of thing. And it turns out that carbonate is CO3, and C, carbon dioxide, CO2, is the commonly uh, referred to greenhouse gas. And so the ability to tie up CO2 and form it into a solid carbonate has the potential for taking it out of the atmosphere, putting it underground, for example, in geosequestration environments. And so the specialized NMR monitors the rate of that formation of CO2 into carbonate. And we can do so in conditions that are mimicking what happens underground, you know, a mile underground. So it'll be um, at high pressures and elevated temperatures. And we can test out rock samples that maybe might be in a field somewhere, for example, in Illinois, where they want to see if that's a good storage candidate. And we can do so in the presence of liquids as well, not just the dry rock. And so there's salty, briny slurries of you know, rock samples that we wish to examine. And it turns out that looking at this by NMR lets us characterize things that are not seen by any other technique. So it's clear that what scientists like Hayes can learn from NMR has important technological and, in this case, environmental applications. But how does it work exactly? What happens is that all matter, or much of matter, that has NMR-active isotopes, so these are atoms that exhibit nuclear spin, and spin is sort of a colloquial term, if you will. It's a term that we adopt because of how... Uh, how the nuclei behave, and in a magnetic field, the spin behaves differently whether it's aligned with the field, so pointing, let's say, up if the field is pointing up, or whether it's anti-aligned, pointing down when the field is pointed up. And so the whole idea of NMR and MRIs when they're done on people is it splits these two energy levels that would normally be at the same energy into two different ones. That's the magnetic portion. Resonance is the idea that we're hitting a transition very sensitively between those two energy levels. The same idea applies to like a bell. If you hit a bell, its resonant frequency is the tone that the bell makes. And so there's a direct analogy here that hitting this tone between those two energy levels is also a resonant phenomenon. And so the N of nuclear magnetic resonance says that we're looking at the nuclear spins. So these nuclei have this property that we call spin that I alluded to. Turns out electrons do as well. And nuclei have a little bit bigger variation because there's so many different types of nuclei. So pushing the bell analogy a little mm -hmm. further with the, the proton, the different levels be a different tone. Oh, right. great well. analogy. Yes, perfect. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. So yes, uh, thank you for bringing that in. That's exactly correct. So the protons resonated a different frequency and have a different tone. You know, maybe they'd be middle C or maybe a high C because they're a high frequency species. Whereas carbon, you know, aluminum, I have a chart on my wall that you can see. And this chart lists a whole bunch of different isotopes and their different frequencies. And so we use, we build the hardware here to match those different frequencies. So it turns out, as you might guess, the size of the magnetic field affects how big of a splitting there is. So when you hear about 
in the you know popular press that there is a new magnet getting installed at the med school and it's a 1.5 Tesla machine and that refers to a magnetic field strength. It turns out that that will translate directly into how those protons resonate and so different field strengths mean different tones if you will. So does every individual instrument have a different strength? Yes. So do you have to go to different magnets to do different experiments? How does that work? It's a little bit, the answer is yes and no. When I call a machine a, let's say, a seven Tesla machine, it's easy to roll off the tongue that it's seven Tesla, but it's actually 7.00002 Tesla. And my neighbor might have a 7.00003 Tesla machine. And those will cause, even that tiny little variation causes different frequencies to be accessed. But in general, my hardware will work on the hardware of the other group. Continue your question, which is a really good one. The size of fields you know, range from anything, let's say conventionally, from about one to two Tesla, which is a very low field system, all the way up, I'm gonna have to do the conversion. But these days, uh, up to 23 or 24 Tesla. So that's a huge range. And so sometimes if you work at the very, very highest fields, like 24 Tesla, you can access some of the nuclei that we wouldn't be able to see very well with our hardware. You've mentioned the hardware a few times, and mm -hmm. the hardware here specifically. Could you give our audience a sense of what that instrumentation actually looks like or what's involved? Is there a magnet? Can we get into yes. that at least? There is a, a large magnet. It looks like a water cooler surrounded by a usually a mirrored silver shield. It's the, in a large, what's called a doer. So it's just, it's jackets of liquid nitrogen and liquid helium and vacuum that keep it cold because it must be chilled to four Kelvin or so. So those magnets and, you know, in an MRI machine, of course, it's turned on its side so that a body can slip inside. So if you've ever seen an MRI magnet, it looks much the same, sometimes silver, sometimes painted. In addition, there's a whole set of, you know, racks of electronics that look like something out of a 50s or 60s era sci-fi movie. Cables everywhere, blinking lights usually. Sometimes when they're in more medical environments or in more commercial environments, everything is put behind cabinets, you know, it looks cleaner and neater. If you come down to any of the labs, Jacob Schaefer's, Mark Conradi's, Joe Ackerman's, or mine, normally it just looks like um, an electronic shop gone bad. <laughs> and so maybe it looks like a garage sale from Radio Shack. So it's because we build and unbuild so many um, experiments on a regular basis, it means that the hardware is kind of all out exposed. But there is a magnet. <laughs> yes, there is a magnet and a very strong one too. So yes. If we could, this probably has less to do with your own work and I appreciate you taking the time to explain it at a simpler level, but just because this technology is used for MRI imaging and that's probably one thing that people may have experienced or mm -hmm. been familiar with, are they directly related or is they are related? it's so neat because people like Paul Lauterbur who got the Nobel Prize for this work had this great insight which is that and maybe I can simplify it this way when they're doing an MRI on any of us they're normally looking at water and there is research related MRIs that are pushing the envelope on things like sodium in your body and so forth but but the most common version done is looking at water in your body. And you can imagine that water that moves really quickly, like in your blood, that might look, that might move really fast. So there's dynamics involved. There's some kind of motion. And water that's moving in tissues like muscle and maybe in fat, well, that probably moves at a slightly different rate. It's going to be a lot slower. And of course, the water that's present in your bones barely moves at all. 
And it turns out that the difference in time scale between those three is something that the MRI is able to image. And so it gets this great contrast of your tissues in part by looking at water and looking at those differences. So you get these great pictures because the dynamics of the water are different for those different types of materials. And so in essence, all we're doing is looking at the protons on the water molecule, and that turns out to be really, really a great indicator of problems or of you know, structural things going on. And so it's really, um, it's a great tool. And so you can use the same, using that same thinking, you can imagine how one can extend from, you know, humans to all sorts of things if you wanted to look at motion of like CO2 through a rock. And it's the same sorts of ideas. And as it turns out, Washington University in St. Louis has a long history of NMR innovation. Some of these techniques were actually generated and invented here at Washington University. So this is an important thing about our university to highlight. So... I tend to focus on solids. Much of nuclear magnetic resonance is done on liquids and then on people. But my solids could be based in the organic chemistry realm, meaning carbon-based or inorganic realm. So the things that were invented here that have particular um, import for this is magic angle spinning. It's kind of a funny term. Magic angle sounds so exotic. But it's the idea that certain interactions inside the solid can be negated, if you will, or, or, or drop to zero is how I would put it, by spinning samples rapidly at what's called the magic angle. And the way to picture the magic angle is it's the body diagonal of a cube. That means on a cube from one corner to sort of the opposite corner. And so what that has the effect of is taking that amorphous solid and that normally would appear as a big blob in NMR, and it narrows the lines significantly so that when we look at that spectrum, and I know you're not going to see a spectrum here, but nonetheless, when it narrows them, then we have a really nice, sharp frequency we can look at and we can characterize it. And so that was something invented here at Washington University uh, decades ago. And now we are standing on the shoulders of those giants, you know, the younger generation, combining, you know, NMR with lasers. And so all of this is newly emerging techniques that we hope will revolutionize NMR and MRIs as we go forward. So it's a very exciting thing for us to be here. There's a lot of these developments that come out in part because this is such a rich place for these techniques. Many thanks to Sophia Hayes for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty page on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.